0: It's a true joy to spend this time with you on a Sunday morning as the first fruits of our week, church. If you grab your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We continue uh, in this great account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as according to Luke, by God's holy work. Chapter 3 today, looking at verses 15 through 17. Last week we studied Luke's account of John's message, John's preaching this week, we see another side of John's testimony as he answers questions from some of those who were hearing him preach. John's message began to stir people's expectations and hopes for the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, and some thought that John might be him. Look with me at our first verse this morning, church, Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So Luke starts here by saying the people were in expectation. They were in great expectation the promised deliverer, the Messiah, the Christ. The miserable oppression that the Roman government meant for them was heavy taxation, strong arm policing. Uh, coupled with a plethora of man-made rules that the Jewish leaders were imposing on the people all meant that many were desperate for the arrival of the Messiah to come and in their minds make things better. Given their hard circumstances, it makes sense that they're wondering if this fresh message from this emergent voice that's attracting such a large following could indeed be the promised Messiah. Now it's true that John is a prophet of the Lord, as we've been told. The Lord Jesus later will say that John is the greatest man to ever be born of man. But John was not the Messiah. And he never claimed to be. On the contrary, John the Apostle's gospel account tells us that when the Jews asked John the Baptist straight up if he was he said I am not the Christ John 1 verse 20 what I love about John is this church here comes the top guys in the game and what he does and what he's prepared his whole life to do he's doing it and with great success And here comes the guys that you want to be known by. You want to be recognized by them. And instead of letting the fear of man sway his words and his heart, instead of letting his pride or ego cause him to put any kind of spotlight on himself, John is all about pointing to Jesus. He wants no credit. He wants no accolade. John doesn't take the opportunity to say, Hey, while you guys are here, check out my portfolio. Let me, let me tell you about the things I've accomplished. Let me tell you about who I am. Most men, I think, would be tempted at the attention, the opportunity to make it about them, but John is not most men. Look with me at the details of his answer to their inquiry in verse 16. Luke 3.16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's answer is all about the worthiness and the supremacy of Christ, the power of Christ as opposed to himself. In John's answer, we hear him emphasize that the Messiah is great and that he is not. It is my great privilege to point to him. That's why I'm here, to get his people ready. John is so humble. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Church, we, we miss the weight of this statement in our modern culture. If I asked you to hold my shoes you probably would do it but in that culture the sandaled feet of grown men were absolutely disgusting because they walked everywhere on unfinished roads and dirt and filth and sludge and animals pulling carts and anything you can think of was commonly on the feet of the common man And so to untie one's sandals would have been the lowest of the lowest job. And here is John saying, I'm not even worthy to do that job for him. That's how much higher and greater and mightier and supreme he is than I. Talk about answering the question. (laughs) John's essentially saying, I'm just one voice in a big land that is very lost, saying, Get ready, the Messiah is coming. Hope is coming, the one who can save us from ourselves, from our sin, our fleeting pursuit of our own fame, these lies that we've lived. The one who can save us from these things is coming. I'm just a little, tiny galactic nobody of a man. The one who's coming, the one whom I live for and point to, he's everything. And I am not. I've used a unique comparison in teaching on John the Baptist before that I love to share. It's almost like John is saying, My name is I am not. His name is I am. Knowing that that is the name of the Lord, the great I am, Yahweh. It's a fitting one, two. The announcer in no way wants the spotlight. Hear his answer again. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Do you see that John, what he does here with his answer He doesn't engage them about the merits of the practice of water baptism. Instead, he confirms that it's all about Jesus, right? The issue is Christ. The most important topic at hand is Jesus and who he is to you. Not what what I'm doing, not, not these things. The one whom John has been sent to point to and announce is the one who will change everything the only one through whom one can have new life, Jesus Christ. And this is another big takeaway. I, I think we can, the church can, the culture can, get caught up in the details, in, in the things around, in, in, the, in debate over secondary issues and this and that and form and function and secondary doctrines and in that all the while miss the most important thing. The issue is Christ himself, first and foremost. Church, we must avoid getting into arguments about doctrine with people who most importantly and most first need Christ. I remember watching an interview years ago with a prominent pastor who was on a pretty prominent TV show being interviewed, being grilled. It was a moment to really see how would this be handled. That interviewer kept grilling him with controversial things hey what do you believe about this what about that what about this and, and the pastor did a great job to continue to not go down those rabbit trails but to continue to say let's talk about Jesus and who Jesus is and most importantly who he is to you so before we get caught up in all these other things that's what's most important John is humble and he keeps the conversation focused on who Jesus is and what he's come to do. He doesn't allow it turn in to turn into to conversation about him or these other matters of, of baptism or policy or whatever else. Notice with me that John in this in his humility is humble, but he's not humiliated. I think sometimes when we think of humility, we think of being humiliated. We think of um, feeling like I gotta put myself in a hole. And experience like this miserable thing and be unloved and be down. But that's not John's testimony. John loved his life, he was joyful, the scriptures tell us. Right? He had a right view of who he was in comparison to Jesus. That's being humble. But he wasn't humiliated, he wasn't down and out. See, John had a lot of reasons to proclaim that he was someone important. John was no ordinary man. There was, he was the key subject of much Old Testament prophecy. He's the son of a prominent priest, born as a result of the direct intervention of God's power, miraculous birth, con- conception in his late elderly mother's womb filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, engaged in a ministry which drew multitudes to hear him preach. And yet he understood rightly who Jesus was and therefore who he was in comparison. To spend time talking too much about me is a waste of time. And I think that's a good question for us, for you today. What have you been pursuing? What has been important to you? What, what trophy, what accomplishment, what, what objective, personal glory, dream, goal has your days, your hours, your mind, your, your focus been on instead of Jesus? What do you allow to get you all worked up if it doesn't go your way, if you don't get the recognition you feel like you deserve, instead of simply being joyful that you know Jesus and simply get to point to Him despite what you're going through. In John's Gospel, we have some added insight from John the Apostle that shows us about the state of John the Baptist's heart in these things. I love this testimony we find in John 3 28 through 29, I'll actually cover the next few verses in a moment. But look at these with me. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete." John understood the most important thing about his entire life was to point others to Jesus. To build up and get others ready for his arrival. In this, John's kind of the original hype man, at least in this era. But here's the thing. It's his total privilege to do this. he doesn't ever get caught up that it's not about him. Even later in John's account, we, his, John's kind of followers come and say, Hey, look, they're all following this guy now. What about us? And John's like, you don't get it. That's what it's all about. It's one of the big reasons why John the Baptist is one of my favorite figures in all of Holy Scripture. There's much of me that wants to be just like him. If people don't remember who Josh Kirstein is, but they know Christ and they love Christ because of my life or testimony, that's all that matters. Nothing in my life is more important than that. And I pray that can be the same for you as well, Christian. See it with me. John understood how low he was in the towering shadow of God the Son, John knew rightly who he wasn't and who he was. We see this in his answer. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He, Jesus, is mightier than I. The Messiah is mightier than I. I'm not the Messiah. He is mightier than I. And it's more than just being content To humble himself in front of the crowds. He doesn't bolster himself up. He shares his heart for why Christ is his joy and is supreme to him. My joy is complete to do this. I'm not lacking something because I haven't accomplished or I haven't earned or I haven't got to this place in my lifetime. My joy is complete because of the simplistic opportunity to point others to Jesus. What a privilege. And in this, then the next verse, we, we see this, what could be seen as maybe a mantra for John's life. Great verse, worth memorizing. John 3 30. Speaking of Jesus, he just simply says, He must increase and I must decrease. Any temptation in me to make it about me must get low. And in any moment and opportunity I'm given, I want to make much of him. All of this preaching, all of these crowds, all this ministry that's going so well, his entire life, he's saying, I exist to make much of Christ. And, and, and if we see our salvation rightly, couldn't we say, church, that this is true of us too? Of these short days the Lord gives us, that we're blood-bought by Christ and now called to live for the glory of Christ, for the, for the testimony of Christ. That means any temptation, any day to make it about me, to make it about myself, is futile. It's a waste of time. It, it is literally in that very moment of focus on the wrong thing. So what does it look like then to wake up each day and to live my life To increase the name and the fame and the testimony of Jesus among those who need to hear it. Starting those in my own household, my neighbors, my co-workers, and beyond. And to decrease any name or fame or testimony that points to me. How do we begin to do this? I think we begin to do it with a right understanding. And that's what John says next in John's gospel account, verse 31. After the famous John 3:30, he must increase, I must decrease. John says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. This is in line with what John is saying in our verse in Luke's account that Jesus is mightier than I. He is supreme. It's about Jesus' deity. He who comes from above is above all, His, his supremacy over everything, in all creation, everyone. Jesus is God. He's worthy of our praise, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our devotion, of our days says the universe, he who comes from heaven is above all. And in the middle, he speaks of us. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. It's a great revelation of the truth about who God is and who we are in comparison to him. He is truly set apart. We need to rightly understand that all of this that you and I are doing today, yesterday, tomorrow, if given the opportunity, this story of life, is an epic tale it's written it's produced it's directed and it's starring God the story of God always has been and always will be but he chose to write you and I into this story and in this we must never think that any of this is about us or for me or about me my recognition, my fame, my dreams. We must start with the right understanding of who is above and who it is all about. He is mightier than I. Do we get that? Do we understand who he is? If we don't, we are doomed to struggle in these days to convince ourselves that somehow for this moment, for this stretch, for this weekend, it's about me. My family, my job, my plans. I love Paul's words in Romans eleven, thirty-three through thirty-six, this high crescendo of this letter of the Romans, the turning point of that letter. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? if we're honest in our flesh how often do I want to give God counsel hey I really feel like this should be going this way hey I really feel like I've done a good job and really wish I could have this in return verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen Creator of all things has chosen to invite us into His epic. This means that we don't counsel the Counselor. We don't tell Him how it is. We don't give Him anything He doesn't already have, or that He hasn't given us. We have arrived onto His scene. Who are we to even think for a moment that I have a say? and how it should go and who gets the riches and who doesn't. It's his story. And I just say, Christian, have you lost sight of this lately? If so, we have to get back to a simple but fundamental understanding about who he is and what is his And in that, then two things will happen. Number one, any of us who have experienced his love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness are overwhelmed and grateful. Thank you, Lord. And then mobilized properly in a correct understanding of who he is and who I am of what these days he's entrusted to me are for. Because every day that you and I try to make this life about us, we are trying to direct something that is immovable. And that will make your life very frustrating and hard. problem is we can quickly get caught up in seasons stretches be exposed to people promoters thinkers circles influences people who essentially tell us kind of what we want to hear that it's about us it's about our happiness about what we want that our pleasure is the ultimate goal and that somehow that pleasure is not met in Christ but is met in something else we get, followed, we get swallowed up in this infectious deception to do it our way. That it can be about me. I mean, isn't that not the pitch of the great deceiver in the beginning to the fall of our federal head, Adam? Eat the apple and be just like him. Eat the fruit. Technical theologians in the room, get that right. <laughs> For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What Paul and John, these guys are saying, it's all about him, it's all for him. John's highlighting the, the, the bigness of Jesus. He is mightier than I is coming. And in that, He's doing what you and I must do, to have a right view of Jesus, therefore a right view of ourselves in comparison to Him. And then that launches us into a right purpose and priority for our days, that He must increase and I must decrease. A reshuffling of our deck, a new pursuit, a new practice, step by step, day by day. Let's not miss the beautiful example that John the Baptist is. His testimony is relatively short. And yet Christ will later say is the greatest man to ever be born a man. But, But what we have about him is pretty simple. It's not extensive. It's not nearly as extensive as we have on Moses or Abraham or some of these others. Paul. But he was so sharp and focused on this single, single task that with vigor and steadfastness it just remained all about Jesus. And and so much so that generations later it still has a profound impact on me. And may it be for you as well. That Christ would increase and we would decrease in all we do. Notice with me another emphasis we get here in verse 16. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming in the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says, I baptize you with water. And this is John's way of saying my baptism is just a setup. It's just a shadow. It's just a step under what you really need. I'm not the deliverer. I'm the one pointing to the deliverer. I'm not able to wash your sins away. He is. I'm the one helping you see your need to have your sins washed away. I'm not able to forgive you of your sins, but he is. I'm trying to help you see your need to be forgiven. Preparing a way. John's baptism was not like the baptism that Christ instituted for us who are saved in the new covenant. John's baptism was focused on a symbolism of washing and needing for repentance and turning. Ours is focused on a unity with Christ in his burial, in his resurrection, in new birth. The baptism that Christ brings is the sovereign work of God to give us faith. So in this, when John says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, What that's speaking to is not the baptism that you and I do as an obedient step to honor Christ's commands to do the ceremony we call believer's baptism to testify about what God has done. No, this word, this use of the word baptize is to speak of God's sovereign hand to give new birth to people. The power of the Holy Spirit, the fire of God. Sovereign work of God to give new faith, saving faith, to give us new birth, supernatural baptism of sorts. The power of the Holy Spirit coming upon those whom God chooses in his time to give us saving faith. And the refining fire of God then going to work in our life from that day forward. It points to a fundamental reality about saving faith. And that is that no exterior effort that you and I do brings new birth. Only the intentional work of God the Holy Spirit brings about true salvation. No man or work of man can do this. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, brings about true salvation and new life in God. John mentions fire here, let's talk about fire End of verse 16 He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire Fire is used a lot in Holy Scripture To talk about a lot of things It's used as an image of the exalted As we see in Exodus 24 An image of judgment and destruction As we see all over An image of purification and refining As we also see all over I'm going to come back to some of that when we get to verse 17 in a minute. But there's two ways that the fire of God goes to work that I really want to highlight this morning, and that is the refining fire of God on his people and the judgment of God in fire for the guilty. Consider both of them with me for a moment. The refining fire of God is a true and great blessing for those whom God saves. Malachi 3, 2-3 gives us some good imagery. For he is like a refiner's fire, a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. The Hebrew word for refiner expresses a melting, a testing, a refining of something, mostly metals, mostly precious metals, such as silver and gold. It's not a one-time thing, it's an ongoing thing. In the ancient world, the crude metal was remelted to remove impurities, making metal castings, tools, weapons. The Metal was heated in pottery, crucibles, and ovens, and hearths, and bellows used to provide drought to create intense heat. The Scripture speaks of God as the master refiner, seeking to refine us like the work that's done in precious metal. Isaiah 125, I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy. In 1 Peter, later, chapter 1, verse 7, the refining of gold is used as a metaphor for the stronger faith that emerges after persecution, the sovereignty of God in our lives. His refining fire's purpose is to purify something of value, to make us more and more holy. God's purpose is to purify his people by, by his refining fire so that we are a vessel of worship, Made more and more into Christ's likeness, and that is pleasing to God. One um, I've been told of a pastor of old who also did this kind of work in his normal job, and talked about the process, the ongoing process of refining, and it's it's really never done. People would say, well, "How do you know when you've arrived finally?" And he said, the goal is, it's done when I can see my face in it. How cool of a metaphor is that of Christ-likeness. 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Church, we must always resist the temptation to assume or think that we can sanctify ourselves. We cannot. We must rely on God the Holy Spirit to be the true agent of sanctification. Sanctification is a big theological word, it is the progressive act of making something more and more clean or holy. It is the beautiful refining fire of God in our lives. Realize this, Christian, at the end of the day, it's still fire. Therefore, that process can be, often is, very painful and hard. But we must never lose sight of the fact that it is always for our good and for His glory that He does that in us. He disciplines those He loves. He refines those whom He saved we must never lose sight of his promises, church, found in his word as we're going through hard seasons of refinement. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. Here at church, take it deep in your soul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. But John says that his people will be baptized by the Messiah Baptized, the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit in fire, here in our verse, we see the imagery of God's sovereign regeneration and sanctification in the life of the believer. This miraculous supernatural work that only God does is truly amazing. Nothing external, nothing superficial about it. Truly, truly Changing of every part of our lives to be saved and then to be sanctified. Now, on the opposite side of the fence are those that God does not give saving faith to. They reject Christ. They remain guilty in their sin. Some notable places that we see that God use fire to execute his divine judgment and or eternal judgment. Remember back to Genesis 3 when God removes Adam and Eve after their fall in sin and places a flaming sword to guard the road back to Eden and in the tree of life God destroys the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire the Egyptians experience supernatural thunderstorm which involves hail accompanied by fire Aaron's sons are consumed by fire in front of the tabernacle as they violate the protocol given to them Korah's rebellion abruptly ends when Yahweh consumes 250 men with fire Fire also played a very central role as both animal sacrifices were most often consumed by fire. For this purpose, in ancient Israel, a perpetual fire was maintained on the altar of the burnt offerings. Hell is a final destiny of unbelievers and is variously described by figures of a furnace of fire, eternal fire, eternal punishment, described as the lake of fire, the final state of the wicked burn with unquenchable fire speaking of Christ's judgment on the unbelieving John continues in verse 17 look with me Luke three seventeen. his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire the winnowing fork is a wooden fork that looks a lot like a big shovel its purpose is to lift the grain so that as the wind or the winnowing fan can go to work and blow away the chaff the heavier, best grain then falls down to the threshing floor, thereby separating it, while the lighter chaff is blown off, blown away. This is imagery of a judge who is like a farmer harvesting grain, as we read in Jeremiah 15:7. "The unrighteous are portrayed as the unwanted chaff, and they are to be separated or removed from the grain, what is desired. It's a sifting, a great tile of testing where a person's true colors emerge. The good grain is saved in the storehouses, and it's compared to those who draw near to Christ in faith and repentance. They are saved. They are preserved by God. The chaff is blown by the wind and gathered and burned. It's compared to those who reject Christ, remain guilty in their sin, for they will suffer God's eternal wrath and fire and destruction. Consider Jesus' words himself, spoken often of these things, but consider what he says in Mark 9, 42-48. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The fact that Jesus will be the one to truly and ultimately divide the people is a prophetic word, if you remember, church, of Simeon holding six-week-old Jesus and gave this warning to Mary. Luke two thirty-four. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. The fact that sifting is needed is a regular point made not just here, but by the apostles and by Christ often throughout the New Testament. For there will be many among the true church with superficial faith that must be sifted out either along the way or ultimately by Christ in the end. The late great theologian J.C. Ryle makes this point an emphasis In regards to what we read here by John the Baptist in verse 17, he says this, The visible church is now a mixed body. Believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, converted and unconverted, are now mingled in every congregation and often sit side by side. Surpasses the power of man to separate them false profession is often so like true profession, grace is often so weak and feeble that in many cases the right discernment of character is an impossibility. The wheat and the chaff will continue together until the Lord returns. But there will be a solemn separation at that last day. The unerring judgment of the king of kings shall at length divide the wheat from the chaff and divide them forevermore the righteous shall be gathered into a place of happiness and safety the wicked shall be cast down to shame and everlasting contempt in the great sifting day everyone shall go to his own place you have to think of the context with me church John is speaking to a mass gathering of people who are showing an interest in the things he's talking about. And yet he is saying clearly, the call is to repentance. The call is to Christ. But he's recognizing that among many of them, what they're there to do, what they're about to do, what they're thinking they're doing is superficial. He who is mightier than I will sift and sort Church, we who belong to Christ, whom God has saved, need not worry about our standing. I want you to think about this. We need not worry about our standing because Scripture is clear that God knows whose are His and that He will not lose any of us who are His. That means it's not by my work or lack thereof that I get out of this deal. That is a great assurance. Right? Right? So I rest in the perfect knowledge of God, and I take seriously the call of God on my life. True belonging to Christ can rest in the fact that we cannot be lost in any way. If we are truly saved, we are secure in Christ. This is why the word of God must be preached faithfully, and why the church must be held accountable to honor Christ with our lives for those who are only playing part. For they will not stand, they will not endure Maybe they endure for a while. Eventually, many will reach a crossroads by which the thing they want more is what they go pursue. Many will not repent. They will turn to the thing that they value more. Church, ultimately, Christ knows. He knows whose are his, and he will sift us all When John says the winnowing fork is in his hand He's saying the Messiah has arrived And is ready to separate The wheat from the chaff From the true believers and the superficial ones As we continue to read the Gospels The sifting happens in Jesus' life and ministry Many who are looked to be following him and committed to him Eventually reach a crossroads in his own preaching Where they turn and walk away See with me Why John brings such emphasis To this extreme point All of this is still under the mantle Of John calling his audience To repentance Those famous words Repent for the kingdom of heaven Is at hand He's not loving them To play light with this He is there to to set the table To ring the bell To pave a way Repentance is one of those Prime markers that we have To see in each other's lives Who belong to the Lord and the absence of repentance for those who only played a part for a season. Because those who do not belong to Christ as Lord will not submit to him ongoingly with saving faith, will not endure in obedience, will not repent of sin when it comes to view. Something they love or desire more than Christ comes about and they chase after it. In this, they turn to obey their own passions. They're not held accountable with repentance because they don't serve God. They still serve themselves. Now, in the end, those that have struggled to repent, who maybe even are in a state of discipline, we pray that at some point they do repent, that their true colors are revealed in repentance. That's why we don't stop praying for those who have struggled with a lack of repentance but we don't endorse their superficial faith with an ongoing practice of it. It is our hope that they do repent and show that they true, truly do belong to the Lord in the end. See, John's audience is so, such a variety. His job is to make a way for those whom Christ came to save. John does this by saying, The hour is here. Christ will ultimately sift you like wheat. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See with me that repentance, both at salvation and ongoingly, is a good test of one's faith. The same plea remains today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I pray it be so in your life as well. Finally, look with me, church, to verse 18. As Luke transitions... By saying, Luke 3.18, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. We don't have a lot more of what John said. The reality is, John's life was pretty short. He was eventually, quick thereafter, arrested and then beheaded. Luke makes it clear that John remained faithful to preach the good news of Jesus to those whom God put in his path. What is the good news? We call it the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect, sinless life, his substitutional, sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserved, And they are reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God. Praise be to God. We call it the good news because there's no greater news that you can be told in all of this life. Nothing else does what only Jesus does to save us from God's eternal wrath and unite us with him forever. Paul said it well in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received... What is that news of first importance? That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says here, that news of first importance, the greatest importance, news you will ever hear, Christ crucified on behalf of sinners and raised as the forerunner of resurrection unto eternal life with God. If you can hear my voice today, The most important news you will ever do business with is who is Jesus to you? If there's any part of you that continues to sit here and think, I've got to get a little more clean, you you don't understand the gospel. You'll never attain that. It is by God's grace to help you to see the beauty of what God has done in Jesus' life, death and resurrection, that you would confess your sin before him and give your life to him and let him have you, go to work to sanctify and refine you and grow you it's only in Christ that you'll move away from the things that have had you for your lifetime, things that have plagued you, it's in Christ's power that these things happen but you cannot decide this on your own, it must be the Lord to awaken your soul, to give you spiritual discernment, if and when that's happening, that you would trust Him. And in that, He would no longer, Jesus would no longer be the figurehead of some religion, or the figurehead of the religion maybe you've been investigating as of late, but now He would be the Savior of your sins and the Lord of your life. If he is, then you will repent of your sins, turning from them, to no longer do what dishonors God, but to be confronted with the Holy Spirit's power, with the Word, with the walking in the body, and to turn unto what honors the Lord, no matter how hard it is, because you belong to Him, because you love Him above all else, and live for His glory. Praise God that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. May many on this day, both here and around the world, who hear the gospel preached, repent and believe and be saved. May they confess their sin and trust their life to Christ and be saved. May Christ increase and may we who belong to him decrease as we are refined in his sanctifying fire. For Christ alone is truly greater and worthy of all of our lives until he takes us home to glory. We fight the fight to make much of him. And oh, how great it will be to reign with him forever and enjoy him. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this time, for the life and ministry and testimony of John the Baptist. Really two sermons, two two parts of this passage that are, are very sharp or very firm. By your sovereign appointment, this is the passage that these people on this day would interact with. And I thank you for it. I thank you for your divine appointment for us to be the ones to be here, to consider these things, to be confronted by these things, for you to do a mighty work in each of us. Lord, do your work. That we would not be moved or find a way to to make excuses and stay busy with temporary things, but, but we would be moved and changed and sanctified and mobilized unto what honors you. I'm excited about the things you're doing in this new year, in us, through us. Pray you would continue that work as we seek to decrease, make much of you in all that we do. Thank you, Lord, for these things. Be glorified in us as we worship you in song and in our parting ministry to come today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.